So glad y'all are here this morning. Uh, we turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today, continuing in our Satisfy series. This is the second to last week of the series. We're going to finish it uh, next week, so come back next week for the series finale, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the entirety of the chapter, and we're talking about what does it mean to live a satisfied life. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you recognize that the answer to satisfaction really isn't there in its entirety. Solomon presents a problem more than he gives us a solution. And so we're looking to Christ as the source of all things that satisfy us. The book of Ecclesiastes is categorized in the Old Testament as a book of wisdom literature. There are three books in the Old Testament that are books of wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is different from other types of books like a narrative book full of stories like Genesis or a book of prophecy like Malachi. The three Old Testament wisdom literature books are Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job. And when we think of books of wisdom literature, we understand Proverbs being one of those, a book full of wise sayings. But Ecclesiastes, really? This is one of the wisdom books? The wisdom's here in this passage and in this text, but it's not as neatly packaged as it is in Proverbs. But I do believe that at the end of Ecclesiastes, this book sounds a lot more like Proverbs than it did in the beginning. When I preached several weeks ago, we were in Ecclesiastes 4, and there was no mention of God in the entire chapter. And today there are two mentions of God. So I'm very, very excited about that. When people study wisdom literature, we say it's something uh, different than than other types of of, of passages or other types of scripture. Um, One of the things that people say when they study wisdom literature is that wisdom literature actually contradicts itself sometimes. Did you know that? The Bible contradicts itself. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, Solomon said this. He said, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. And then the very next verse, he says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or uh, you may be just like him. So either Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, or he was the dumbest man who ever lived. To contradict himself in two verses. Did I just disprove Christianity this morning by sharing that with you? No. What Solomon is teaching us, y'all, is that living a godly, wise life is very complex. It's not like playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the piano, hitting a few right notes in the right moment to make out some very basic tune. No, living a wise life is like playing one of Beethoven's symphonies on a piano, a piece of music that is designed to show mastery and emotion and nuance and discipline. And sometimes, y'all, depending on the situation, answering a fool, correcting someone when they're wrong might be a a good decision, a wise decision. But then sometimes, y'all, it might actually drag us down into a fight that we don't need to be in. He says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then don't answer a fool according to his folly. And you may say, Liam, I don't care about the different characteristics of wisdom literature. This is the worst introduction ever for a sermon. The reason I tell you that this morning is because the main idea of our message today is a contradiction. In the spirit of studying wisdom literature and then pointing to Christ, our main idea is going to be a contradiction. And that's this. Hedge your bets. Semicolon. Don't hedge your bets. Will you read with me Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 10? Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. 
Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether the morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant. And it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that this is your wisdom given to us today. So Father, I pray, would you guide us into your truth? Would you protect us from error and misunderstanding? God, would you give me the words to say, Father, we want you to be glorified in this place this morning. Father, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hedge your bets. Don't hedge your bets. We're going to spend a few minutes in the first six verses of this passage looking at uh, this idea of do not hedge your bets. And in the first six verses of this passage, I see Solomon telling us, really telling us three things. The first thing that he tells us is in verse four. Notice what verse four says. It says, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Point number one is that even though life is hebel, we should still be working. Even though life is hebel, we should still be working. That's going to be our first point this morning. And what Solomon is telling us here is that even though life is pointless, remember, that's the message of the book so far. Even though life is pointless, we should still be working. When I hear that some task or some mission is pointless, wouldn't we want to kind of give up? In some regard, absolutely. Solomon is saying here, even though life is vanity, we should still be working. He never says that that his message of the book is an excuse to check out of the game. And he never speaks favorably about laziness. He says we should still be working. We said earlier that the message of this book is calling us to wake up, not to give up. And Solomon says, we should still be working. And in these first six verses, we're given some of God's wisdom about some very practical things, about money, about work, about how we see life. And so um, this idea of hedging bets, second second thing we see first, we should still be working. Then second with our money is we're called to hedge our bets. Now, you're probably wondering what these cardboard boxes are for. We're not having a food drive. These are going to be our visual aid this morning. Solomon says that we need to hedge our bets. Notice verses 1 and 2. 
Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. This is advice about our jobs and our money. To cast your bread on the waters means to trade with other people. He's saying ship your grain to other people that you might find a return for that. He's talking about investing here. And that's what he says. And divide your portion or your net worth to seven or to eight. Solomon says seven or eight, but y'all just bear with me. We have five. These boxes are going to represent our investment opportunities for the morning. And right here, I've got 100 bucks, my net worth. <laughs> y'all can laugh at that. Please laugh at that. Five twenties. We're going to make the, the math easy this morning. We're going to invest some money. We've got some leftover money. We want to invest to get a return for that money. And what is God's wisdom revealed to us through Solomon? Is it to go all in on one thing? No, it's to spread it out to seven or to eight. What kind of things would Solomon have invested in in his life? They would have invested in things like grain. That's the one he tells us in verse one, cast your bread on on the water. So let's say we're investing in wheat some. He puts 20 in there. What else would they have invested in? Animals would have been a big one, right? So let's put some in cattle this year. Let's put some in sheep. Let's buy some sheep to make some money with. Let's invest in wine, right? Vineyards would have been a big deal. We're going to put a 20 in there. And then maybe like building materials, right? Like timber. So we're going to put a 20 in there. This is what Solomon is calling us to do. You have to say, Liam, I don't handle my money this way. Take it up with God, not me. This is what he says. Divide your portion to seven or to eight. And why do we do this? What's the wisdom behind hedging our bets for not going all in on something but to spread our money out? Let's just say, for example, this one right here, sheep. And we just like the way sheep look this year, and we think that sheep are going to be very lucrative this year, so we're just going to go all in on sheep. So I put all my 100 bucks on sheep, and then a sheep plague breaks out that year, and I lose all my sheep. I've lost everything. But what happens if I put a 20 in each one of the box and sheep loses everything, but wine does really, really good, and instead of 20 bucks, I've got 60 bucks? Pretty good. Despite the sheep fiasco of 722 BC, I've still had a pretty good year. And there's wisdom and there's safety when it comes to our money of hedging our bets. And you may say, Liam, I thought this was church, not a financial seminar. The third thing that we see in this passage is Solomon get at the deeper issue of why we hedge our bets. And the reason is because we're not God. Four times in this passage, he says, you don't know. Third thing we need to know is you need to know and I need to know that you don't know. Look at your neighbor and say, you don't know. Hey, guys, be nice to each other. Come on, seriously. <laughs> you need to know, and I need to know that we don't know. Solomon gets at something deeper here than just a financial issue, and it's our tendency to play God because of our pride. Notice verse uh, 2. Divide your portion to seven or to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur 
on the earth. Then look at verses five and six. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Verse six, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Was it four or five times in the passage he says, you don't know. And we get to something a little bit deeper here, y'all. Because we got to remember that wisdom literature was written to combat foolishness. And so whenever God gives us wisdom saying, you do this, it's a pretty safe bet that my heart wants to do the opposite. Is that fair to say? And so implied here is a person who thinks they know and they go all in on something because they know what's best for their money. This is somebody who thinks that they have expertise and have a, has, has the knowledge, something that we have inside of us that makes I know how to go all in. And God says, you don't know. Three years ago, if I had invested all of my money into Bitcoin, I'd be pretty wealthy today. But would I be a genius? I would be lucky because nobody knew. Sometimes, y'all, I think there's a desire in all of us to know enough to be able to say, I know where to go to go all in. And in that moment, what we're doing, y'all, is we're saying we know, and we have elevated our pride above the wisdom of God. God says we need to know that we don't know. Maybe it's not just money. Maybe it's your relationships or it's your career or whatever it is. Y'all, I think sometimes we're looking at our lives and we're thinking about the decisions we need to make. And so we find something and we think that that's what we're going to go all in for. And so we say, I'm going all in. And do you know what we do as Christians next? We go all in and then we hit our knees. And we say, Father, I just made a huge decision with my life, with my money, with my resources. Father, I went all in on this one thing. W would you please bless it? I've done it. I mean, we kind of laugh because when we say it out loud, it's so dumb because we act like we know. And instead of hitting our, hitting our knees and then making the decision, we make the decision, then we hit our knees. And when we do that, y'all, we need to hope that God would be gracious and loving to us enough to let us fail so that we might know who we are and know who he is. Solomon says, you don't know, so hedge your bets. We don't know, so we need to hedge our bets. The second half of this passage, verses 7 through 10, Solomon changes his topic. And so will we. So we're hedging our bets, and then we're not hedging our bets. And for us to actually avoid contradicting ourselves in a very serious way, this visual aid's going to change just a little bit today. This, the visual aid is, is changing how we're approaching this this morning. Instead of these boxes representing different investment opportunities for us to make a return on some money, these are going to be different things that we might run to to find satisfaction in our life. You guys remember the name of the series, right? Satisfy. 
What do we run to in life that we might run to certain things and invest in them so that we might reap satisfaction in our life? So instead of this being $100 of U.S. currency, this is your heart. And this is going to be my heart this morning, 100% of your heart. Where do we put our money to um, invest in certain things? I want you to notice verse 9 with me this morning. It says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Solomon says, follow the impulses of your heart. And the testimony of this book is someone who tried to do this, right? You guys remember chapters one and two of Ecclesiastes? Maybe if you uh, weren't, weren't with us during that, let me just tell you what he did. If anybody hedged his bets trying to find satisfaction, it was Solomon. Chapter one, he tells us that he ran to knowledge. <laughs> He said that he considered wisdom and madness and folly. He was running to knowledge and wisdom, trying to become smarter, elevate his intellect so that he might satisfaction. Solomon said, ooh, this is my heart. Ooh, I'm going to try that out. Let's see if it satisfies me. He said it was, it was Hebel. It didn't satisfy. What else did he run to? In chapter 2, he tells us that he ran to alcohol. So I put food here. Now, alcohol is a problem in so many lives because it exposes our tendency toward addiction, it exposes our tendency toward rage and things like this. And while not prohibited in scripture, explicitly drunkenness is. But so many of us in churches, we know that idea. And we, maybe you haven't drunk in so long, maybe you haven't been drunk in so long, but you still live a gluttonous lifestyle. Running to substances, things to fill you. And it doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be nicotine. It can be marijuana. It can be caffeine. It can be sugar. Have you ever heard somebody say before, uh, when, when I wake up, I can't function until I get? That's not cute, y'all. What we're saying is I'm running to something to satisfy me. And you say, Liam, are you against caffeine? Lord knows I'm not against caffeine. <laughs> I'm against anything we take our heart and we put it into to find satisfaction. And for somebody, a little kid, that could be a sucker. For an adult, that could be something much darker. Anything that we run to to find satisfaction. Solomon says he ran to alcohol. That was his thing. And it was Hebel. Chapter 2, he ran to the house. We're told that he built palaces for himself. He built large gardens for himself. And so for us, considering this one, we're just going to call this any material thing that we run to for satisfaction. I got to get the house. I got to get the car. I got to get the watch. I got to get the, the iPhone. I got to get whatever that person's wearing that I saw in the catalog. These things that we chase after to say, once I have the material thing, then I'll have satisfaction. That's what Solomon ran to. Chapter 2, he tells us just very briefly as well, he ran to sex. Very briefly, he just says, I amassed concubines for myself, the pleasures of men. And the testimony of Ecclesiastes is that we're down to our last 20, and we're still not satisfied. 
We see a summary of his pursuit in verse 9, and he's added another variable to his equation from chapters 1 and 2. And notice what he says in verse 9. He says, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Talking about what we have a responsibility for God, to live for him, to follow his commandments, follow his decrees. And we can enjoy some of these things. Amen? Right? We can run after some of the things. Education is good. It's not inherently bad, but it's bad when we put our heart into it. Right? Food's not bad. We're supposed to enjoy it, but we put our heart into it. That's a different thing for any of the rest of them. He says, recognize your responsibility before God for all these things. We're just against anything that we put our heart into, that we take a good thing and make it a God thing. And it doesn't work anyways, because we're down to our last 20, and nothing is satisfied. And then verse 10, y'all, cracks me up. This is his solution. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Anybody just want to pray and get out of here? We've solved the problem, right? Remove grief. Hey, hey guys, I'm just telling you. It's what the Bible says. Hey, just remove grief from your body. And anger, just take it away. Pain, just, just get it out of here. Anybody like thanks Solomon for the helpful tip? Now that you've told me to remove grief and anger from my heart, I can do it. Anybody there? From my experience, y'all, I identify with what he's talking about, but I can't remove it. I can't solve it. You know what's even weirder is I can identify with it, but I can't identify it. Some days I'm just like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I have everything I need. I don't even know of something that I want, but I just am unsatisfied today. I, I, we say, oh, I'm, in the, I'm in a funk. I'm, I'm in a weird mood, like whatever it is. There's something wrong with me today, but it's saying, I've got all the boxes, but my life, there's something missing. We identify with the pain, but sometimes, y'all, we can't even figure out where the pain is coming from. It shows how little we really know ourselves. The one who's making the decisions <laughs> doesn't even know himself. You guys know why we can't identify the pain? Because at the heart of each one of these boxes is a lie. Each one of these boxes has lied to you. Knowledge has lied to you, food has lied to you, the material things lied to you, sex has lied to you. And they have said to you, put your heart here and this will satisfy you. And the thing that you ran to, the thing that I've run to, to satisfy me, to produce the satisfying life for myself has actually turned into a weight. It's turned into a burden because I chased after knowledge. I chased after my intellect to grow so that people would respect me, so that I might become a knowledgeable person, so people might call me even an expert, that I would know what to do with my money or any other area of my life. And so I chased after this because they told me it would satisfy me, but my pride increased and it hurt my relationship with God and it hurt my relationship with other people. And what turned out as something that was going to satisfy me actually became a weight that I'm carrying 
And I ran to food, I ran to alcohol because that's what everybody else is doing. It's just part of the culture. And if I'm gonna have friends, then I gotta partake in some of this stuff. But it exposed some really dark things in me. And what I ran to for satisfaction actually became a weight. And the things are starting to pile up just a little bit. And I started running toward material things because I thought once I get the knowledge and have you know a good time, then maybe I need to start building a nice, comfortable life for myself. And so I pursued the American dream, and I put my money in here. I did what everybody else was doing, and it wasn't about providing for my family anymore. It was just about impressing people I don't even really care about. And now today, I'm drowning in debt because I bought things that were supposed to give me identity, and what I thought would satisfy me has become a burden. Probably the kicker for all of it is that I then ran to a person to say what God has said about me. And that relationship started out really great. And I thought it would be the thing that would satisfy me, but it was not built on Christ. And I have never been more alone. I ran to sex to fill me. And now I'm picking up the pieces of a shattered heart. Anybody ever been like this before? Carrying the weight, identifying with the pain, but we don't even know it's there. And then when we see it, we freak out because we think, I have got grief and anger in my body, and I do not know where to get rid of it. I don't know how to deal with this, and I don't need an encouraging talk from the pastor this morning. I need somebody to save me. I need somebody to take the weight. I need a life preserver because I'm drowning and the burdens that I ran into. I walked into these things, and I don't know how to get rid of them. Does anybody know who could take the burden? Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Two thousand years ago, a man named Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God, and he claimed to have the power to forgive your sin. He claimed that if you would just come to him, he could deal with your burden, that he would provide you the rest that you crave. He said that we were drowning in our sin, that we were perishing. Those are his words. And he claimed to be God and claimed to have the power to be able to take your sin. In Matthew 9, Jesus went to Nazareth and he encounters a paralytic man. This is a man who cannot walk. He's laying on a mat. He is a beggar. He's, he, he can't provide for himself. And Jesus, knowing our greatest problem, walks up to the man who can't even walk and he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven you. 
the religious leaders, they think in their minds, how could this man claim to have the authority to forgive sins? Jesus reads their mind, and he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man does. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to have the power to forgive your sin, and he followed it up by healing people miraculously. The religious leaders, they they didn't like Jesus, and they decided he had to die. They recruited a man named Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' followers, who ratted out Jesus, betrayed him, and Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial, and he was crucified or sentenced to be crucified, even though the Roman prefect Pilate believed that he was innocent. The man who claimed to be God was stripped naked. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was tortured, and he was put on a cross. And y'all, what happened next, I don't understand. I don't understand what happened next, but I believe it fully. The scripture teaches that Jesus on that cross, somehow he had taken up your burden. He was holding and carrying the thing that you've been carrying for so many years. And Jesus was bearing your burden. He was carrying your burden in a different way than we could ever carry our burdens. When I carry my burdens, most of the time, I don't even know they're there. But when I know they're there, when the pastor starts talking about them, I start to freak out and think, how can I get rid of all of this? Jesus was bearing our burden. And he was dealing with it. He was paying the penalty for it. He was satisfying the wrath of God for it. Churchy word that we use sometimes, he was atoning for your penalty, for your burdens. And at the heart of this mission of Jesus to come to earth and atone for your sins was submission to the Father. This was the plan of God. This is what God called him to do. And when Jesus breathed his last breath in Luke 23, 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus, the man who claimed to be God, died. Took his body down off the cross, and it seemed like all of the whirlwind around this man named Jesus was over. Until three days later, when some people started to spread rumors that Jesus had risen from the grave somehow. But who's going to believe that? Who's going to believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave? Sure, some people were saying it, but there was one of his disciples who didn't believe it. His name was Thomas. And Thomas said, I will not believe Jesus has risen from the grave until I see the nail scars in his hand, until I feel his side. Y'all know the story of Thomas, right? John chapter 20 Jesus shows up for Thomas, and he gives Thomas the cold, hard evidence that Thomas wanted. He says, come examine my body. Come feel. Come touch. Come see. You guys know that Thomas doesn't even touch him. He just cries out, my Lord, my God. Thomas saw the resurrected Christ. 
And he said, my Lord and my God. He's saying two things there. He's saying, you're on the throne of my life, Jesus, and I also recognize that you're on the throne of the entire universe. You're on the throne of my life, but you're greater than that. You are God. You are the one who has the ability and the power to take away our sins. He is God. And in the next verse, Jesus says something about us. Do you know this? John 20, 29, because you have seen me, Jesus talking to Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And suddenly we get interjected into the story. Thomas, you've seen, you've seen the evidence that you demanded. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We're not going to get that evidence, but what do we have, y'all? What do we have to know? I'm not talking about just make a guess that Jesus is worthy to take all of you. No, I'm not talking about just having a guess or an idea, but what do we have? We have the revelation of his word. God, talk to us. You want to hear God talk? Read the Bible. You want to hear him talk out loud? Read it aloud. We have the revelation of God. Y'all, we have witnesses. Think about it. For generations, people who have been proclaiming, my Lord and my God, have been faithful with this gospel message, and he has come to Winterville today, and we stood. You're surrounded by people who do not see Jesus, and yet they believe, and we worshiped him today. They know that the resurrected Christ is worthy of a whole lot more than your last 20. He's worth more than just the fifth option for you to try to find satisfaction. And repentance and surrender is when we start taking the 20s out of the other boxes. We say, I don't need this anymore. I was running to material things, but I'm done. I was running to another person. I was running to sex to satisfy me, but it will not fill me. I ran to my knowledge or I ran to the food, the substance. I ran to all these things, but I don't need them anymore. I just need him. Church, I stand before you today, say on the authority of God's word, the resurrected Christ has the power and the ability to take your burden. What are you waiting for? Stop hedging your bets. Go all in. He's worthy of every part of you. One more thought while I've got these boxes out here. Some of us, We know this. We know the gospel message, the good news about Jesus. We know he's worthy. And maybe you're a believer sitting here today, but you are still ensnared in some sin. You have fallen into the lie and the trap that true satisfaction, 100% satisfaction, is Christ plus something. Right? Pick, Pick a box. Let's just say it's sex. You said, I found out the secret equation, and this is it. And we start to elevate something else to say, I've figured it out. It's sex plus Christ equals full satisfaction. And we struggle with sin even after we're saved. Is that fair? And spiritual warfare is a battle for our hearts. And we've, sometimes we put a 20 here. And what Satan does is he makes you doubt your identity in Christ. He says, how could you be a believer if you're still running to this sometimes, right? 
And I'm not here to judge your heart this morning. That's not, that's out of my pay grade. But I can tell you based on Ecclesiastes 11.10, when we do this, you are inviting pain and grief into your life. When you say, I want to say, I want to make a new equation, sex plus Christ, or the house plus Christ, or food plus Christ, or knowledge plus Christ, whatever it is in your life, what you're doing is you're inviting the wages of sin, which is death, into your life. And you would never think of it that way. Why? Because at the heart of this box, and any other box besides Christ, is a lie that we believe. Genesis chapter 3, Eve ate of the fruit because she believed the lie that when she did it, she would be like God. So many of us have believed a lie. So I ask you, is there one box or is there something competing that we need to give to Christ? To say, I just need him. I recognize what he has done for me and I want to stop hedging my bets. I want to go all in. When you look up the term hedging your bets on Google, it says abstaining from making a difficult decision. You're faced with a choice and you say, I don't want to make that decision. And spiritual things, y'all, that is so dangerous for us to do, to abstain from making a decision about Jesus. Because he's worth every part of me. We need to go all in. Just to close this morning, I love another passage of wisdom literature to describe this life of living with Jesus all in. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of you know this passage. Maybe you've probably memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you've memorized 5 and 6, I want to encourage you to add 7 and 8 your bank as well. What did Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Go all in. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, right? Listen to verses 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing for your body and refreshment for your bones. Healing for your body, refreshment for your bones. Who wants that? I do. I want to be satisfied. And the best thing we can do as a church is to point to Christ and say, y'all, stop hedging your bets. Church, I, I encourage you and I urge you this morning, stop hedging your bets. He's worthy of all of you. So let's go all in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love. Lord, we recognize that without Christ, there would be no good news to share. So God, we thank you for the gift of your son who came so that we might have life in his name. Father, I pray for each person here, God, tonight. Maybe they're an unbeliever, Lord. They know they need to go all in. Lord, so maybe someone who's a believer who's still struggling with some of the things of the world, God, I pray that they would see you for who you are, God, and they would respond in worship, surrender, that isn't negotiating. Father, would you give us the strength to live all in for you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Y'all are dismissed.